Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this toe tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is one of our bonus episodes that we call a toe tag. It's the first chapter from a fresh released, how did I say that? (laughs) A fresh release in the mystery crime and thriller genre. Today's featured release is Black and White by Justin M. Kiska. Okay, let's jump right into chapter one. Spring, 1985. Detective Sergeant Ben Winters pulled the unmarked Crown Vic off the paved road onto the dirt and patchy grass of an expansive field. The tires crunched loose stones and twigs as he pulled up next to a pair of Parker City Police squad cars already on the scene. They, in turn, were parked on either side of a mustard-yellowed pickup truck emblazoned with the city's Public Works Department logo on its doors. Easing to a stop through the dust-covered windshield, Ben saw two uniform officers about 100 yards further on. With them was a man he could only assume was the city engineer who reported the disturbing discovery. The day had begun beautifully with a bright blue sky and white cotton candy clouds lazily drifting overhead. It was almost too picturesque to be real, the kind of day you only saw in movies and paintings. Ben made his way across the parking lot from his apartment building to the car. He heard birds chirping in the trees and smelled the sweet scent of freshly blossomed flowers lining the sidewalk. Yes, the day was picture perfect. Not normally one to stop and smell the roses, he found a little extra bounce in his step that morning. With his suit jacket slung over his shoulder, giving him the distinct appearance of a young model out of the J.C. Penney catalog, he thought even the temperature couldn't be any better. Not too hot and not too cold. Goldilocks would have undoubtedly have approved. Whether he was simply allowing the brilliance of the moment to cloud his judgment, or it truly was, he felt it would be hard to describe the perfect spring day. Stopping for a cup of coffee and a bagel on his way into the station, even the sometimes surly waitress behind the counter welcomed him with a warm smile and a cheery greeting. And could that be a new butterfly clip in her hair? Seeing a copy of the Herald Dispatch left by the previous customer lying there, Ben scanned the headlines on the front page as he sipped his coffee and listened to the random conversation surrounding him in the small coffee shop. They're opening against the Blue Jays next week. What makes you think that, Ripkin kid? I hear he makes a million a year, one elderly gentleman was saying to his friend across the table between bites of pancake. Next to him at the counter, Ben overheard a woman telling the waitress, my sister just doesn't know how to make a ham for Easter. It's so salty. I gave her my recipe for how to make it right, but every year it's the same, too salty. He wasn't exactly eavesdropping, but in his line of work, it never hurt to keep one's ear to the ground. In his experience, he learned many cases were solved because of something someone saw or heard and didn't think much of at the time. How much more innocuous could a conversation over a cup of morning coffee be? Thankfully though, Ben didn't overhear anyone plotting a bank heist or talking about knocking off a business partner. By the time he finished his bagel and headed for the door, Ben was convinced it was going to be a smooth sailing for the rest of the day. As was his routine, he fully intended on arriving at the station early. 
but with no pressing cases open at the moment, he was in no rush. All he really needed to do was take care of some paperwork that was sitting on his desk. Even that wasn't time sensitive, but Ben's personality didn't allow him to get too behind on his paperwork. A self-avowed workaholic, he wanted to make sure his reports always landed on the desks of his superiors in a timely fashion. Whether those reports were read in, an, in as expedient a manner was something he had no control over. He could only control his part in the flow of information. Arrived at the outdated police headquarters with its leaky roof, horribly worn floors, and institutional covered walls, he was delighted to see the splendor of the day had also found its way inside the PCPD. Instead of the sour expressions he was accustomed to seeing on the faces of the officers coming off the night shift, he was taken by the broad smiles and laughter he encountered as he made his way to the small office the detective squad occupied on the second floor. It was going to be a good day. And it would have been if several hours later he and his partner hadn't been rolled out to take a look at a body found in the middle of a field. It was a large piece of property the city owned on the outermost edge of the north side of town. The area expected to soon see a large amount of construction, according to those in the know. Homes in Parker City suburbs neighborhoods were filling up quickly, which meant new developments were needed for those looking for houses. What was planned for this particular parcel of land would be the largest residential development the city had seen in some time. For at least the last decade or so, Parker City had been struggling. The once booming town fell on some pretty hard times through the 70s. The population dwindled, the businesses fled. The final nail in the coffin came with the Great Flood of 1978 that devastated the city, leaving many parts of downtown completely abandoned. It was the election of a young, energetic mayor who vowed to restore Parker to its former glory that began the city's turnaround. While the downtown neighborhood still had a way to go before it was returned to its once bustling grandeur, the new developments popping up on the edges of the city were a sure sign there was momentum behind Parker's revitalization. It was looking as though the city was on the right track after a long period of decline. Stepping out of the car, the weather was so pleasant that Ben left his suit jacket lying in the back seat where he tossed it before leaving the station. But, as he always did when he was about to enter a new crime scene, he placed his hand on his Smith & Wesson on his hip. The weight of the cool metal helped centered him so he could focus on whatever he was about to be confronted by. It reminded him how important his work was and the duty he believed so much in. It was thinking like that that had hurt earned Ben a reputation of being a Boy Scout, an idealist who truly wanted to protect and defend the people of Parker City. He always wondered how some people could make that sound like it was a bad thing. Maybe after a few more years as a detective, Ben would become as jaded and start to be more cynical. It happened to so many police officers after all, but Ben hoped he'd never turn that corner. In the few years he'd been a detective, he'd seen some disturbing behavior and knew the depth to which society could sink but he still tried to look for the positive. That was the only way to fight against the drag that inevitably carried some of the members of law enforcement into a dark place. No matter how much bad he saw in the world, there still was good. Some of the older members of the department liked to live in the gray area of the law, while Ben tried his very best to always do what was right. 
it's when what it's when what was right fell into those gray areas that Ben needed to rely on his partner to help make sense of what needed to be done. Trying to imagine what they'd been called out for, he knew no two crime scenes were ever the same. Sure, elements could be similar. There was always a tragedy overshadowing them, but each was unique, which was why Ben walked into each with a completely open mind and a keen pair of eyes trying to take in every detail. It was always the details that cracked the case, which meant one never knew how important the smallest piece of evidence really could be. If something was out of place, it was important until it wasn't. That's how he thought. And sometimes, and this was often the most confusing part, the absence of something was just as important, if not more. Not putting your jacket on, the voice of Ben's partner, Tommy Mason, came from the other side of the car. I didn't realize this was a casual crime scene. Ben raised an eyebrow and rolled his eyes. The two were always taking shots at one another. It's what they did. It's what made their friendship so strong. When it came to what to wear as police detectives, there was a continuing debate between the two. Ben felt a suit and tie was most appropriate. Not only did it look more professional and attract a certain level of respect, but with his clean-cut baby face, it helped him look a little older than his 30 years, though not much. Tommy, on the other hand, saw nothing wrong with wearing jeans and a t-shirt under a leather jacket. While he might look like a cop on one of those popular crime shows on television, Ben always pointed out that it was Hollywood's version of a police detective. And since Ben technically was his supervisor and commanding officer, Tommy begrudgingly put on a tie every morning. Most days, though, he usually left it loose with his collar open wide. Ben still took it as a victory. Blowing a ring of smoke into the air, Tommy dropped what little remained of his cigarette on the ground and stomped it out before taking his corduroy jacket off and tossing it into the back seat. If Ben didn't have to wear his jacket at a crime scene, he sure as hell wasn't going to wear one. Doesn't this feel much less constricting? He asked with a grin. And it's so much easier to get to our guns in the event we're in danger. Shut up, Ben said as he started toward the cluster of men in the field. I'm just saying, if your life was in danger, it would be so much easier for me to shoot someone to save you, which I would do, you know, if I didn't have to worry about my jacket getting in the way. Those few precious seconds could save your life one day. Natalie would agree with me. Stopping and turning to look at his partner a few steps behind him, Ben asked, why exactly do you think it would be that you would be saving me and not the other way around? Because that's just the way it is, Tommy answered very matter-of-factly. Think about how many times I've saved your life. Ben's forehead wrinkled, a puzzle expression appearing on his face. What the hell are you talking about? I'm the one who saved you at least two times that I can think of, and that was in the last year alone. Clearly, we remember things differently, Tommy said. You're a pain in my ass. You know that, right? Ben asked. Smiling the thousand-watt smile for which he was known, Tommy answered, I like to think I keep you grounded. And so was the way of detectives Ben Winters and Tommy Mason. More often than not, they sounded like an old married couple bickering about one thing or another. 
completely devoted to one another, they were closer than brothers. They'd grown up together, gone to school together, joined the academy together, and when the order was given for a new detective squad to be created within the Parker City Police Department, they were tapped for the job. As it was, for the last four years, they were the only two members of the department's official criminal investigation team. Though Parker City was by no means a hotbed of criminal activity, they'd been involved in several major investigations that had rocked the city, two of which even attracted the national spotlight, making the pair famous for a few minutes. Most police officers could go their entire careers without being involved in the types of cases that had kept them up at night, but the two young men had earned their detective shields through trial by fire. Catching his foot in a clump of thick weeds, Ben knew if he tripped and landed in the dirt, Tommy would never let him hear the end of it. Thankfully, he was able to quickly regain his balance and keep himself upright. His hope that Tommy didn't see the awkward contortion the lower half of his body performed to avoid hitting the ground was dashed when, from behind him, he heard the sarcasm-laced comment, as graceful as a gazelle which was then followed almost immediately by the unmistakable sound of something hitting the dirt. Hard. Son of a... Ben turned in just enough time to see Tommy jumping to his feet and dusting off his pants. Not a single word, Tommy admonished, vigorously shaking his head. I'm well aware that karma's a bitch. Deciding to take the high road, Ben valiantly stifled a laugh, fighting to burst free. You've got a little of something right there on your, uh, Ben started pointing to his partner's pant leg. Shut it, Tommy said, at which point Ben couldn't contain himself. The laughter won and overpowered him. As the two detectives reached the other men standing in the field, they recognized one of the patrolmen as a new officer who just recently joined the department, and the other one was one of Tommy's least favorite people on the planet, Buck Lococo. An overweight, lazy throwback to the days when the police in the city did as little as they needed to. Neither Ben nor Tommy understood how he was still on the force, nor why he wanted to be with his attitude. Lococo, Brown, Ben said, giving a uniformed officers each a quick nod of his head. How is it, Buck? Tommy began. Whenever a body drops in this town that you're the first man on the scene. Just lucky, I guess, Lococo said, mopping his sweaty brow with a wrinkled handkerchief from his pocket. It could also be that scumbags in the city do their dirty work at night, and since I'm the first one out of the door in the morning, I get the call. Either way, it's crap, I tell ya. Being that it's after lunchtime already, Tommy began to say before Ben placed a hand on his arm, giving him the signal to let it go. Then, turning to the younger officer, who appeared quite eager to give his report to the department's chief detective, Ben asked, What do we got? This is Sam Rupert, Brown introduced the man referring to his notebook. He's one of the city's engineers. He was doing some routine work out here this morning when he found the body of a young female, DOA. Turning to Rupert, a tall, beefy guy in a flannel shirt, jeans, and work boots, Ben took his own notebook from his shirt pocket. Morning, Mr. Rupert. I'm Detective Ben Winters. You're with the city? Department, or Public Works Department, he said in a gravelly voice. Almost 15 years now. And what brought you out here today, Ben asked. Well, the city's getting ready to do some work in the field, and I needed to take a few quick measurements, he said. We've been out here every day for the last week. 
I thought I'd be here and gone in a few minutes, and then I found... His voice trailed off as he looked away towards something another twenty or so feet away. What did you find? Ben asked. A body, he said. She wasn't there yesterday. I know that for a fact because I was here all day with a couple of other guys. We were all over this place. We'd have seen her for sure. Pointing to the mound the engineer was staring at, Tommy asked, Is that the body? Uh Uh-huh, the engineer said. Did you cover her up? Or did you find her like that, Ben asked, referring to the tattered green checkered blanket. She was like that, Rupert said, taking a deep breath. At first, I thought it was something, someone in a sleeping bag or something. Thought maybe they slept out here last night. Sky was clear, they could see the stars. But when I got close and hollered, there was no, she didn't move. And when I got up close, I saw, geez, I've never seen anything like that. This isn't how I thought my day was gonna go. Other than the occasional funeral, it was true. The average person didn't see much exposure to dead bodies, but there was something in the way the man was acting that made Ben think that there was more to the story. He was too shaken up. If one could be too shaken up after finding a dead body on the job. Judging by the look on Officer Brown's face, Ben could tell that there was still something to come. The young man seemed giddy or nervous. He anxiously shifted his weight from one foot to the other. Either he had another interesting piece of information to share, or he needed to find a restroom. What is it you've never seen before? Ben inquired, interested to hear the conclusion to Rupert's story. Oh, I think you should see this for yourself, Detective, Lococo said, interrupting with a twisted smirk on his fat face. What is it, Lococo? Just tell us. Tommy had no patience for the man. There was a time he used to hide his contempt. Now he didn't even bother. Not that Lococo was very observant, or he just didn't give a damn. Sirs, Officer Brown interrupted, let me show you. Walking the group over toward the covered body, Brown knelt down and, using a handkerchief he had in his pocket, pulled back the blanket, revealing the naked body of a beautiful young woman with dark wavy hair. But something wasn't right. Not that the naked body of a woman in the middle of the field was right, but in this instant, it was her skin. What the hell? Tommy's reaction matched what Ben was thinking. She's blue. Blue wasn't entirely accurate, but it was pretty close. The skin was a pale hue, almost white, and there was a frosty sheen to it, with small ice crystals visible around her eyes and mouth. Little droplets glistened on her eyelashes. She's frozen, Brown said, looking up at the detectives. It was cool last night, Tommy said, kneeling down himself to get a better look, but not cold enough to freeze to death. No, Brown said, I mean, she's frozen like a block of ice. Laying the back of his hand on the woman's cheek, Tommy quickly pulled back. She's frozen solid, like rock hard. I told you you needed to see this for yourself, Lococo said. I've seen a lot of crazy shit in my time, but this? A frozen body in the middle of a field? I'm glad it ain't my job to solve this one, Benny boy. That's Sergeant Winters to you, Lococo, Tommy snapped, always eager to defend his partner's stripes and put Lococo in his place. More often than not, it was the latter. Officer Lococo, 
Ben began, wanting to get him as far away from Tommy as possible, before he said something that would make the situation any worse and probably end with an internal investigation. Would you please go radio in and tell them to send the medical examiner and the state crime scene unit and a few additional patrolmen to help secure the scene? They all watched as the hefty officer lumbered off toward the patrol cars, mumbling something to himself. What the hell, Ben? Tommy asked, not able to take his eyes off the woman's frozen form, his voice betraying his utter confusion. I'm not sure what we have here, Ben admitted, looking down at the body at their feet, but we need to do what we always do, start at the beginning. Once everyone gets here, we'll let the Emmy do his job, CSU do theirs. Tommy looked around the open, empty field. There was a line of trees only a few yards away. Isn't that the city-county line, he asked. The engineer squinted and pointed to a patch of brushes just short of the trees. Right there is where the city ends, officially. And if this body had shown up just a few feet that way, Tommy said, pointing toward the bushes, this would be the sheriff's problem? Ben nodded. Tommy looked down and tilted his head. Okay, you get the legs, I'll get the shoulders. Stop it, Ben said, raising an eyebrow. This one is ours. I know, Tommy grumpily agreed. I just have a bad feeling about this. So there you go. That is the first chapter of Black and White by Justin M. Kiska. So here's my review. It is a mystery, and the story is told in two times. So that was 1945. Stride agency investigator Francis Fitzmason is hired by a retired U.S. ambassador to find the daughter who disappeared while dressing for her wedding. Now is 1985. Parker Police... Parker City Police, man, there's too many P's in this sentence. Parker City Police Detective Sergeant Ben Winters and Detective Tommy Mason are called to the scene of a woman's body discovered in the field. She's young, she's beautiful, and as you just heard, she's frozen solid. Now Winters and Mason take up the case where Uncle Fitz left off 40 years ago. So the bottom line, Black and White is for you if you like mysteries driven by classic detectives, both of the cop and private investigator variety. All right, so let's talk about the strengths of the story. So Black and White moves back and forth between a 1945 kidnapping case and the 1985 suspicious death case. You just heard the opening to the latter. The movement between the two periods are distinct, staying in each period for multiple chapters, with the distinct indication of the change. So this was important for me. I, I'm definitely guilty when I read books that change between time periods of forgetting where I am, um, which can make it very confusing. I really like the way Kiska did this. Uh, as you heard at the start of this, it's consistent that it says 1985 or 1945, but I think more importantly, the fact that the story stays in that time period for multiple chapters really at least helped me sink into that time period so that I wasn't getting confused. It also helped that the two time periods have distinct different characters. I think I've used the word distinct like five times now. Um, but obviously we have, we have Ben and Tommy in the now, in the 1985, and then we get Fitz Mason in the other one. So there, it's really hard to confuse them. 
The 1945 story features private investigator Fitz Mason with a cast that's a mix of the local rich and famous and the local cops who are largely covering their own butts. The story is a solid kidnapping mystery with the who, the why, and the how largely making sense. Former ambassador Conrad Martin's daughter, Lillian, went missing the morning of her wedding. Someone carried her out of her father's mansion dressed in her wedding gown. The character of Fitz Mason is one of a classic hero cut and it's easy to cheer for him. The supporting characters of Ambassador Martin, the younger sister Lucy, the valet George Granger, Joe Granger, sorry, and Police Chief Buchanan are also well developed, three-dimensional characters who you get to like, hate, laugh at, and sympathize for. The 1985 story features, as you guys just met, police detectives Ben Winner and his partner and friend Tommy Mason. Childhood friends, they grew up listening to Uncle Fitz's case stories. The suspicious death is intriguing. The who, why, and how are built off of the 1945 case, no shocker there, so while it has equal weight in the book, it feels like a secondary storyline. Even in writing this review, I'm being very careful not to reveal anything that would detract from your enjoyment of reading the story yourself. This is the fourth book for Ben and Tommy, so they have a history and depth of established characters, and the supporting characters in, in the 1985 are more typical of police procedurals, being effective and informative and often entertaining. The scene setting in both 45 and 85 are, yes, I'm gonna use my favorite word, distinctively drawn using language, clothing, and period appropriate relationships between father and daughters and men and women. I felt transported to 1945. The 1985 language wasn't so different from what we use now, and the biggest feel for the mid-80s came from Tommy looking and dressing like the original Magnum P.I. Fitz does an excellent job of driving his story. He investigated, picked up the clues, and drove it to the next point, and then the next point, and etc. Ben and Tommy are more traditional cops, acting on information given to them by the evidence clerk, forensics, etc., and more or less ushering the story from point to point. So all in all, a very entertaining story to read. I couldn't tell you which I liked better. I definitely liked the character of Fitz Mason, uh, but the relationship between Ben and Tommy was very entertaining. So I think it says a lot that I can't even tell you which one I liked more. So where did the story fall short of idea? ideal? Well, I have three different points for you here. Uh, to enable the two stories to be told simultaneously, the modern story had to be slowed down so that it didn't give away the, the historic story. But in doing so, the modern story for me at points felt like it was idling, like it was just waiting until Fitz in the 1945 story was able to advance it enough that Tommy and Ben could make progress without giving away something prematurely. Uh, the logic on the kidnapping, as I said, largely made sense. However, Lillian was knocked out and carried out of a, ma of, of a mansion, busy with wedding preparation without being seen. While Fitz was investigating, he had a hard time buying that part of it, and honestly, so did I. It was never explained how the kidnappers got her out of the house, not without being seen, like it physically explained how she got from point A to point B. but considering that they were going to be having a, a wedding reception there, there was a lot of unanswered. So somebody just carried her out and nobody happened to go, huh, I wonder who that stranger is carrying the bride. Um, 
So in the end, that's the one flaw that my head kept coming back to in this uh, very multifaceted diamond case. The logic on the suspicious death, why the body was dumped, and the steps taken to cover it up, it was fun to read front or start to finish, front to back. But you all know how I look, once I get to the back, like to look forward. And with this one, I did have some trouble with the decision making of characters that are otherwise known to be smart and successful. Um, all three of these criticisms definitely fall into my personal preference category, and other readers may not notice or care about any of these. So Black and White was released from Level Best Books and is being promoted by Partners in Crime Tours and is available from Amazon and other book retailers. Links are in the show notes. So allow me to introduce you to Justin M. Kiska. So when he's not in his library devising new and clever ways to kill people, for his mysteries of course, Justin can usually be found at the Way Off Broadway Dinner Theater outside of Washington, D.C., where he is one of the owners and producers. In addition to writing the Parker City Mystery Series, which includes Now and Then, Vice and Virtue, and Fact and Fiction, he is also the mastermind behind Marquee Mysteries, a series of interactive mystery events that he has been writing and producing for over 15 years. Partners in Crime Tours represents a network of 300 plus bloggers offering virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers. Founded in 2011, PICT serves the well-established and best-selling authors as well as those just starting their careers. PICT prides itself on tailored packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com. Link is also in the show notes. All right, that brings us to the wrap-up. So join us next week for Season 7 Games People Play. It's our regular episode, uh, Episode 4, and it features the game Indian Poker in Force Card by that awesome writer, Ed Teja. With that, we'll turn it over to Jack. Jack, take us out. Look forward to seeing you all back here next week.